Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Ken Jacobson. Today, we talk with Rory Kennedy about her film Downfall, The Case Against Boeing. This is how Rory describes the film. It's a searing investigation of a once iconic company and its tragic failures. Downfall, The Case Against Boeing, exposes how Wall Street's influence and Boeing's crumbling internal culture resulted in two historic plane crashes, 346 fatalities, and a shocking cover-up. Downfall had its world premiere at the 2022 Sundance Film Festival. Rory Kennedy is an Academy Award-nominated, primetime Emmy-winning documentary filmmaker. She's made over 30 films, including the Oscar-nominated film Last Days in Vietnam, Ethel, Take Every Wave, and Ghosts of Abu Ghraib all of which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and Above and Beyond, NASA's Journey to Tomorrow. This documentary, I would highly recommend that you see it, even if you think you know what happened in the case of the Boeing MAX 737. I think you'll see that the causes and roots of the downfall of the plane and the downfall of Boeing as a company are very deep. They go way beyond certainly the pilots, they go beyond even this famous MCAS system that was in the plane. They go to the roots of how corporations work in the United States and elsewhere, I'm sure. And the oversight by government, by the FAA, by the administration, by Congress. Rory does a great job of revealing that web of interconnections that lead to this tragedy. I think the film also shows what high regard Boeing was held in for many years. It was a company of engineers. It was a company that was so closely associated with a particular city, Seattle. I can't think of another example of any other company paired with another city where there was such pride in that company by people who lived in that area and worked for the company or just admired it. So by focusing on Boeing and showing how far and how fast they fell, I think it does allow her to open up the conversation to bring in all these other systemic factors as well. She also does a great job, which is not easy, of bringing in the voices of the families of the survivors and not just giving nod to them, but really incorporating them into the fabric of the film and the storytelling of the film. We've seen that with some of the other films, I think, that we've interviewed on the podcast, like we need to talk about Cosby is one and Alan B. Farrow is another. Procession. Procession as well. We can add Rory to that list. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do follow us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also rate us, leave us a message, or tell a friend about us. It really does help other people who care about documentaries find our podcast. Coming up, our discussion with Rory Kennedy about downfall. Rory Kennedy, welcome to Top Docs. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Can you just tell us, why do you make documentary films? Mostly because I love telling stories and learning about different issues and people's lives that I otherwise wouldn't necessarily be exposed to. And I love sharing these stories with the broader public because I think it they have the capacity to open our hearts and help us see the world from different perspectives and hopefully contribute to a greater sense of compassion and understanding. 
Welcome, Rory. I wanted to start off by asking you uh, about one of your recent films, Above and Beyond, NASA's Journey to Tomorrow. It was, I think, a very optimistic view of a government agency and all that has accomplished in aviation and space exploration, whereas downfall clearly shows the failure of a government agency, the FAA, and our most storied aviation company, Boeing. I was just wondering, did you experience some form of whiplash going from one extreme to the other? I always appreciate it when somebody asks me a question that nobody else has asked before. So you just did that out of the gate. So I actually haven't thought about that connection prior to you asking it. I do think that there's truth to that and truth to what you're saying. I think that NASA itself has been a really extraordinary agency and has helped gotten us to the moon and helped us really understand our universe in this profound way. And I think as that film really shows that not only has it helped us understand the spans of space and what's out there, but ultimately really has helped us understand ourselves in a deeper way. And it's really NASA who's giving us the information that is helping us understand climate change and what is both happening now and what's going to happen in the future if we don't do anything. But I felt the excitement of celebrating this institution and the individuals behind it in that instance. It's interesting with Boeing because I love Boeing historically. This is a company that has also helped us get to the moon and it built the 747, which enabled us to go for the first time, really just everyday people around the world and international travel. It's had a commitment historically to excellence and to really high standards and innovation. Part of the title downfall is because it was at a place that was so well-respected and celebrated in our society, in our culture internationally. And because of these influences of Wall Street and the need to make more money and more money and more money, that drive directly contributed to these horrendous, horrific crashes that killed 346 people. And so it's really that exploration from greatness and how that can change both over time and in an instant if we don't really keep a proper watch over ourselves and over our institutions. I was interested in the story because I fly and I'm scared of flying and I wanted to understand exactly what happened. But I was also interested in the story because I felt like these corporations, you look around and these institutions, it's troubling. It's not just Boeing, right? You can see it in the car industry, you can see it in the drug industry, you can see it also in government. So I think we really have to keep a watch on these institutions. That is a message that I'm deeply attached to. In terms of keeping a watch, certainly there were some reporters who were keeping a watch on Boeing throughout this whole affair. And one of them was now former Wall Street Journal reporter Andy Pastor, who you work closely with on the film. In terms of storytelling technique, it's not unusual for documentary filmmakers to kind of pair up with reporters who've reported deeply on a story and also to use them as an engine for the narrative of the film. But I'm not sure if you yourself have done that before. So I wanted to 
ask you when and why did you choose to connect with Andy Pastor? Andy is fantastic. He is a dogged journalist who has been covering aviation for many decades now. He's a real authority. I thought it was interesting that he worked with the Wall Street Journal, which is a periodical that's associated with celebrating Wall Street and really focusing on finances. He's also just a terrific character, a very likable guy. You know, he's very believable as a narrator. You trust him at least in my analysis and experience with him. I think that in this film, he is one of a number of people who helped tell this story. I really tried to focus on people who were on the front lines, either in the investigations like Andy or the congressional investigations like Pete DeFazio, who led the biggest investigation in the transportation and infrastructure committee's history, focused on the question of what happened and who was responsible with these Boeing tragedies. But we also look at this story through the perspective of the family members, Michael Stumo in particular, who lost his daughter tragically in the second airplane crash in Africa. And somehow in the experience of that horrendous loss, was not only able to get out of bed, but really turned into an advocate and really helped pressure the government to lead this investigation. Then we also go into the story of people at Boeing who worked on this airplane and did our best to really tell this story from the people who experienced it firsthand. We don't have a narrator in the film. We don't have people who are telling it from hearing about it from somebody else. It's really, I think, that firsthand account that is so important and makes it feel like you're on the journey as this story unfolds. One of the most affecting voices in the film is clearly Garima Sethi, who was the wife of the Lion Air pilot. Lion Air was the Indonesian airline that was the first plane to crash in 2018. I would love to hear more about how you approached Garima and got to a point where you knew she was going to be a key person in the film. Garima was one of the harder interviewees to secure for this film. You have to remember that she was in a situation where her husband was the pilot of the Lion Air crash, and that Boeing's response to that, including their massive PR team, was to blame the pilots. And so she was in a situation where there was a backlash that she was experiencing against her because there was a narrative that was out there that was pretty dominating that it was the pilot's fault. This remarkably continued even after the second airplane crashed under eerily similar circumstances, as Andy Pastor says, within five months of each other, that Boeing continued the narrative to focus on the pilots and move attention away from the aircraft itself. So Garima was understandably skeptical when I reached out to her and approached her about what our angle was on this film and how the blaming of the pilots would play out. 
And in fact, I remember in one of my early conversations with her, she said, I'll only do this if you don't talk about blaming the pilots. And I said to her, Karima, we have to talk about the blaming of the pilots because that was what Boeing did. That's what their response was. We want to show how there's another narrative out there that's a pretty convincing one, which is that it was the plane and that we now know to be the case. But it took her some time to trust me to have that be a more balanced telling and one that would not take down her husband further. And I think her voice ultimately plays a really significant role in the film. I sent the film to her, a link to the film, just before the documentary premiered at Sundance, which was its launch into the world. And I was happy to hear that she felt like that the film did a great job in telling the story and, and felt like it was very truthful and honest and correct in its telling. Another thing I found really interesting is you not only interview the family members about their own experiences, but in many cases, you actually have them present some of the most damning evidence against Boeing. Michael Stuma, for example, the father of one of the victims of the crash in Ethiopia, explains that after the first crash, the Boeing executive bonuses went up. I think he even partially explains the Tarum, this document from the FAA. He explains that it indicated that 15 more crashes could happen in the lifetime of one of these MAX 37s. Why did you want him to present this evidence rather than, say, a journalist or an expert? Well, one of the things that was really remarkable about Michael and so many of these family members was how much they understood about exactly what happened. And it's complicated, right? I was deep in this for a year and a half and was still at the end of the project, understanding the exact nuance of what had happened and who was responsible and who knew what when and what the technical issues were inside the cockpit and so on and so forth. So it's complicated stuff. Michael was remarkably both well-educated and well-versed and quite articulate about explaining the nuance and very much in the weeds details of what happened. And I felt like, you know, you sort of are looking across the film at who is the best storyteller at any given section. Part of that is who is the authority to tell this? And then part of it is who is articulating this the best? And then part of it is like, where's the emotion in the storytelling and where does that land? In that particular instance, I felt like Michael was just incredibly well-spoken and explained what it was. The Tarim report to me is one of probably the most damning of all of, there's so much evidence that is in this film that is revealed and shown to help people understand what Boeing knew at what point in the process and implicates Boeing in a, in a significant way. But I think the Tarim report to me is probably the most damning. And part of that is because this was a report that came out after the first crash, the Lion Air crash, and before the Ethiopian crash that happened five months later. And as you say, this report show that the FAA knew, and we also know that Boeing was made aware during this period of time, that they both knew 
that there was a likelihood that this plane would crash 15 times over the course of its lifetime. And that's an average of once every two years, it would have a catastrophic crash where everybody on board would die. And they decided collectively to make the choice to keep the planes up in the air while they tried to fix it in hopes, a gamble, that another plane wouldn't crash before they had the fix. Instead of grounding the plane, fixing the plane, sending it back up, they decided to keep it up in the air. Now, if you're Michael Stumo, imagine your daughter is on that second plane and you now know that Boeing and FAA had this information. They didn't share it publicly and they made that decision and now your daughter is dead. It's beyond anything that I could possibly imagine anybody doing consciously. Michael Stumo deserves to give us that information and help us understand what he's going through as a result of that choice, of that corporate greed that informed that decision-making. So we probably should take a moment and go through what did bring down these two planes, which means talking about, speaking of technical jargon, MCAS. Technically, what brought down the two planes was the um, this MCAS system, which was put on the airplane. In brief, this was a derivative aircraft. Boeing was competing with Airbus. They wanted to get another plane to the market quickly. They had had a vision of creating a whole new kind of aircraft that would be modern and new and build from the ground up. But once Airbus had come to the market, was expanding its market share, particularly in the U.S. market and around the globe, and starting to beat out Boeing, they decided they wanted to get to market quickly. So they felt like the fastest way to do that was to basically refurbish an old aircraft, which was the 737, which was built in the 1960s, and modernize it. And so they did that and they put new engines on it, bigger engines, more fuel efficient. And then they got it up into the air and they found that the airplane in certain circumstances would stall if it was at a particular angle. At that point, they had the choice to either ground the airplane and rebuild physically so that it was aerodynamic, that it could stay up in the air as it should. But again, because it would be faster to get the airplane to market, they decided that they would fix it with a computer program that was already on the airplane, and that would be the cheapest, quickest way to do it. So they then changed this system, the MCAS system, to make it more powerful. And basically that system, this computer program, when it sensed from a single sensor outside of the airplane, when it sensed that the airplane was at a particular angle, it would tip the nose of the plane downward so it wouldn't stall backwards. So then what happened is because this is connected to a single sensor, which it shouldn't have been because the film shows that there were internal documents that showed that if there was a sensor malfunction, that if the pilots didn't react within 10 seconds, there would be a catastrophic crash. And particularly if the pilots didn't have any training, which is another issue. But in any case, 
So knowing this, Boeing nonetheless decided to have this single sensor provide this computer system the information. And of course, these sensors get hit by birds. They get knocked off because of the wind or whatever. And even though the plane was not at that angle in the first instance, as well as the second instance, it shot the nose of the plane downward. And then the pilots struggled to keep the nose up. You show this experience pilots must have had in great detail. You really bring us into the cockpit, put us like in the pilot seat at the moment when the system has malfunctioned and you, the pilot, have to figure out what is going on. The other thing that happens when this system fails is there's a cacophony of error alerts that happens in the cockpit that says that your speed is incorrect, that your altitude reader is incorrect. There's a master alarm going off. It says it's overspeeded. There's a whole range of alerts that are happening. And in that, the pilots need to figure out exactly what's happening, make a series of changes to correct the airplane and do that with all within 10 seconds on that first line aircraft, we then later find out that the pilots are expected to do this and that Boeing never told these pilots, any of the pilots, that this system was on the aircraft and that this is how they should respond to it. And now, why didn't they tell them? Why weren't all the pilots who fly these airplanes properly trained? They didn't tell the pilots that the system was on the aircraft, because if they did that, it would alert the FAA that there was a new system on the aircraft. And then the FAA would come in, which is the regulatory agency of the government, to say, you can't have a new system on here without pilot training. And if they were required pilot training, it was going to cost them a lot of money. They did not under any circumstances. And we also have memos that we show in the film that document this under any circumstances, could the FAA be alerted to this new system? And under any circumstances, would they be willing to do any pilot training because it would cost them too much money? This issue of what brings down an aircraft is incredibly complicated. And yet you do a really great job in the film of explaining and showing what it must have been like in the cockpit during these harrowing takeoffs that led to catastrophe. Some of the techniques you use are animation, computer graphics, motion graphics. Can you talk about the process of using those tools to paint a picture of what happened and also how you manage to convey the information to the audience without making it too complicated? I go through life very visually and to have a visual representation of what I just described, what that MCAS system was, how it was connected to a computer system, how it was connected to the sensor outside of the plane and how it operated was an important way to support the explanation that various experts over the course of the film give a very technical thing. So in that instance, I also felt not only does uh, animation sequence help show the audience exactly what that system is and how it works. But it also helps you get into the cockpit of the airplane to really get a sense of what the pilots went through. This is an interesting story in film because there's a spectrum out there of knowledge, right? 
there's some people who read every single article about these two crashes and were very knowledgeable. And I wanted to make the film still interesting to them. And I'm happy to report many people who were on the front lines of this still learned a lot. And I think both having that kind of visual representation and then also hearing from not only a range of experts, but, you know, I think the other thing that a documentary like this can do that's hard in any other format is remind people of the emotional stakes and meeting various family members and understanding what they went through in their plight, I think also adds another dimension for those people on the extreme side of the spectrum of kind of the ones who followed every article and knew every bit of piece about this. I was also aware that this film was for Netflix and it was going to go out to 190 countries. It goes out to so many people around the world. And I wanted to make the story accessible to all of them. I think it helped, honestly, that none of the core creative team on this film were pilots. So we needed to understand it. And then we needed to understand it in a way that we could translate it as a story. And I was very lucky to be working with Mark Bailey, who was the writer and producer on it, Kevin McAllister, who I worked with as a writer and producer as well, and then Don Clezzy, who was our editor. It was the same team who we worked together to make Last Days in Vietnam. I think we all came at it from different perspectives and wrestled in the edit room, in the virtual edit room. Ultimately, I hope that we landed with a narrative that is accessible to a broad range of people. I thought I knew about this story, but you taught me so much more. So I would encourage anyone, even if they think they know the story, to see your documentary. In terms of representations of corporate malfeasance, this often has been the space for documentary, for investigative journalism. There's now an incredible spate of docudrama series about troubled companies, Theranos, WeWork, Uber, and the Theranos story, the dropout, really, I was thinking about that a lot as I was watching this, partly because at the core of that story, there is another very impressive Wall Street Journal reporter, in this case, John Carreyou, who's at the center of uncovering the, the trouble at Theranos. What is the role for docudrama and what's the role for documentary in this world of uncovering corporate problems? I haven't seen that project yet, although I've heard good things about it. I feel like there is an endless need to continue to explore and tackle these areas, particularly relating to corporate malfeasance. And you also see it in the narrative world too, right? Like purely dramatic films. And I think that it's important for all of us to continue to be reminded and to be vigilant. As Andy Pastor says at the end of the film, we have to be skeptical. We have to keep that vigilance. We have to keep asking these questions. We cannot assume that there's just pure goodness there, whether that's in magazine articles or in documentaries or docudramas or narratives or books. I'm like, bring it on. Some folks have said, why don't you tell us what to do at the end of this film? And my response to that is, here's the story. You know, Andy Pastor saw this story and he decided to chase it down as a journalist. I read about this story, thank God, from people like Andy Pastor. And I was like, I want to make a documentary about that. And you guys saw the film and read the story. You're like, let's do a podcast on this. 
Michael Stumo experienced it firsthand and probably with great reticence, it was like, I've got to commit my life to this because I don't want anybody else to have to go through this horrendous loss that I've just experienced. I'm not going to sit here and let this happen again. Other people might get into the streets and start protesting. I've heard people inside Boeing have seen this film and they're saying like, hello, stop. I don't want to work at a company that's still doing this kind of work. So I can't tell people what to do. I can say, here's what I know. And I hope that many people will watch the film. And thankfully, many, many did at Netflix all around the world. And it was actually, I was really so pleased because it was in the top 10 films, like of all films on Netflix for many weeks in a row, the top one in many countries, because I think it touched a nerve. And I just think we've got to keep at it in all of our different ways. You know, all of it contributes to making the world a better place. One of the people who did his part, I think we could say, is Representative Peter DeFazio from Oregon, the head of the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, who led on the House side the investigation into the crashes. In some ways, this is surprisingly an unusual character to find, which is a member of Congress doing the right thing. The public seems to have such little faith in elected officials these days that his handling of this seems almost remarkable. What struck you most about Representative DeFazio's leadership of the investigation and the way he held the hearings? Well, he's fantastic. I didn't know Peter DeFazio before this, but I just am a huge fan of his. I think so many people like yourselves and, and so many of us have a more now cynical view of Washington. And we see these kind of heightened moments where it seems like the Democrats and the Republicans are just at each other and it's about power and it's not really about the issues and it's not really about looking out for the public interest. And you're losing sight of the fact that behind the scenes in the day-to-day -day operations of Congress, there still remains many people who are standing up without recognition and are doing the right thing. And that Pete DeFazio made the decision to do this investigation, to make it the biggest investigation in that committee's history, he really helped us all understand what happened, right? Because there were many things that we only understand now because Congress made Boeing turn over documents. Many of the documents that we show in the film are documents that we found because of that investigation. It's really an important part of having a healthy public-private balance in the United States. It's such an, a hugely important factor in terms of checks and balances, these kinds of investigations that Congress is able to do and really get to the bottom of it. I mean, you then have the Department of Justice who could have pursued criminal charges against Boeing, which didn't happen under the Trump administration, unfortunately. I think one of the tragedies at the end of this story is even though we know such definitive information and that Boeing was well aware of this system and how dangerous it was and hid it from the FAA and should be implicated the people who made those decisions. And yet the person, Dennis Mullenberg, who was running the company, 
at that time leading the company towards these decisions not only isn't facing criminal charges is not going to prison but leaves with 62 million dollars walking out the door of that company in the aftermath of these events i think when you're the public or family members or anybody watching this film you go back to a more cynical feeling of like how is that okay again, we have to keep on putting the pressure on our congressional leaders, getting the right people in office, making sure they're vigilant and protecting the public in any ways they can. And that includes getting presidential leaders in there so that they can have a justice department that is not supporting corporate interests, but actually looking out for the public interest, which was really the intention of those institutions. You know, I think these congressional hearings are often theater, they're televised, they're high drama. But in this case, I think there was at least one significant thing that came out of, at least on the, the Senate side, when Mullenberg is testifying and Senator Blumenthal asks the families of the people who died in the two plane crashes to stand up and hold up the pictures of their family members who died. It's obviously a powerful moment, but it's also a tactical moment because I'm sure Blumenthal knows that Mullenberg, the CEO of Boeing, can no longer ignore these people who've suffered so much that if they stand up and hold up these posters, he's going to have to turn around in his seat and for once actually look them in the eye. I think you captured it very beautifully. I watch that moment still, and I've seen it a hundred times now, and it still brings tears to my eyes. You can't really look at these family members, I mean, unless you're heartless, with the images of their loved ones who have been killed, who are sitting there in that congressional testimony. They talk about the fact that Boeing never called them. They never apologized directly to them over the course of this experience, still to this day, that they would say apologies in the public sphere, but there was nobody who ever called Michael Sumo and said, I'm sorry that your daughter died on our plane and it was our fault. I do think that moment as the audience really understands the depth of the sadness of the loss and the horror of the choices that Boeing made along the way. You want legal ramifications, you want political ramifications, you want criminal ramifications, but on some level, you also want the person to feel what they've done. And so I think in that moment, you really see kind of Mullenberg's eyes and you see how hard it is for him to turn around and then you see him turning around and he just looks so uncomfortable in his own skin. And then he comes back and his face is sort of redder and you feel like he's going to explode on some level. If you really look at him, which I've spent a lot of time doing. And there's, I guess, something in that moment, even though it's only seconds on screen where you think maybe he feels something right there in that instance. Of course, he goes on to like now running other companies and people giving him tens of millions of dollars and all the rest. So, you know, it was probably fleeting. Hopefully every now and then he's reminded and maybe his heart grows. 
Another important character in the film or characters in the film, I should say, are the pilots, right? And pilots hold an interesting place, I think, in our kind of symbolic network. When I was growing up, it was considered a very glamorous, high-flying, literally profession. And I think over the years, there's been some sense of a diminution of pilots as symbolic figures. There are many of them. They're not paid or compensated the way they were in the past. They're not often not trained as they were in the past. You bring Sully Sullenberg, who's recaptured some of that. He's done this amazing heroic thing. Also, he just happens to have a terrific voice. We've got to get him on the pod. What role and what symbolic import do you think they had in your film? They're hugely important in the film as storytellers and as, again, people who were on the front line of this. The pilots who we interviewed, well, there's Sully who testified about this case in front of Congress, Dennis Tasier and Dan Carey were two other pilots who worked at the unions, and they also were on the front lines of this. Actually, Boeing came to talk to the pilots union in the aftermath of these events, which was the first time they said that Boeing ever came to their office. And Dan, who we interviewed, secretly recorded that. So we used that recording in the film. And I think he recorded it in the middle of the meeting because he felt like he was so shocked by how Boeing was presenting itself. This was after the first plane crash. And the pilot said, well, why aren't you grounding the plane? The pilots are flying these planes, right? They don't want to be in these planes until they know their fix. And there wasn't really the kind of assurance that they wanted and needed. And we get on these planes, however often we fly, but these pilots are flying them every day. So the stakes are, I think, much greater from their perspective and also their knowledge base. Once it was revealed that the MCAS system was on the airplane after that first plane crash, which is when sort of these pilots enter the story, they really understand what is this MCAS system? Why weren't we made aware of this MCAS system? Wait, pilots are supposed to know everything about their aircraft. Wait, Boeing has historically always trained us on everything we need to know. Wait, what's going on here? The film, I hope, does a good job of looking at these outside pressures and then the merger with McDonnell Douglas and the kind of you know, what we now know, I mean, which isn't really gone in, in the film, but the GE model of profits, get rid of everybody who we don't need, who's superfluous because they're focused on safety and other things. We just want people who are focused on making us money and getting the plane to the market and not making complications. From the perspective of people worked at Boeing, they were there 35 years. They love the company, were proud to wear team wear. And then one day, McDonnell Douglas comes in, they're running the company and everything changes. You see it from the inside out. And then you also see it from the pilot's perspective because the pilots are used to Boeing being a certain company. And now, wait, we don't know this. They're not telling us this. Boeing had the audacity when they were questioning Congress about the censor that I brought up that was the sole source of the information for the MCAS system. So if that was compromised, then the whole thing would have problems. When Boeing was asked in Congress why they only had this one system, and that's not legal, that you have to have a backup system when there's something catastrophic. Do you know what Boeing said? Boeing said, we did have a backup. It was the pilots. 
the pilots are like, but you didn't tell us it was on the airplane. How can we be the backup of a system that we're not told about? And you have 10 seconds to figure it out. And you have 10 seconds to figure it out. And we're not going to train you because it's going to cost us money. It's just also backward and nonsensical. And I think if you're a pilot and the stakes are like, this plane is going to take over and over and over and over again, try to crash itself. And as maniacally as Sullenberg says, is maniacally trying to kill you. That's what that plane was doing when that MCAS system went awry. It is shooting the nose of that plane over and over every 10 seconds. It's shooting it down into the ground. And you're a pilot and you're trying to figure out what the hell is going on. And if you don't do the right thing in the first 10 seconds, it's too late. You can't recover it. It's too powerful. There's nothing you can do. You mentioned the film is on Netflix. And I noticed that when I went on my Netflix page to watch it and hovered over downfall, two key words come up. One is investigative and the other is emotional. I think the film does do a great job of being both of those things and balancing those two. And there's one sequence in particular in the film that really stood out to me. It's first the sequence in which you're explaining and showing what happened on Ethiopian air, the second plane to crash. You have several aviation experts and Andy Pastor taking us through what happened. You're illustrating it with audio and visual effects. And then we see the plane in simulation crashing into the ground. There's a cut to black. And then the next scene is a fade in to a funeral scene in Ethiopia. It's a solemn occasion. They're grieving relatives who hold up portraits of their loved ones. And for most of that scene, there's no commentary. It's just music and natural sound. Can you talk a bit about balancing those two things, the investigative and the emotional, and maybe say a little bit more about that really powerful juxtaposition of those two scenes? Well, thank you. I do want to clarify that in the simulation, we don't have the plane actually, it gets very close to crashing, but we don't actually simulate the crash because that felt to me like it would cross a line. So I wanted to be suggestive without being literal in that moment. Part of why I made this film is because so many of us fly, right? We buy our ticket, we go to the airport, we go down the tarmac and we get on that airplane and we trust that the manufacturer is doing their job and is going to protect us and the airlines is going to make sure that the airplane is safe and the pilots are going to do everything they can and have been trained appropriately. Congress is going to make sure that the regulatory agencies are overseeing it and their safety. In this instance, they pretty much all failed us in their jobs. In the telling of this story, the seat we're all in is really the families, right? And the victims. Like, we're the people who are flying. We're the people who are getting on these planes and trusting this system. So they are us. So they're an important, hugely important part of the story, not only because they experienced it in such a raw and horrific way firsthand and should be respected as a result, but also because I think they represent for most audiences, the people you identify with the most of everybody. And also, as I said, at some point during the podcast, that there's a lot you can get from reading an article about what happened. But I think 
what you can't ever get is really experiencing what it's like for these families to have had such loss. That moment actually was documented in a number of articles, but I don't think it ever translates as powerfully as it does when you're at the end of this film and that's the landing. Like that's, oh, that's the horror of the whole story, right? I have to ask you if you would get on a 737 max today. I would not get on a 737 max today. There are a number of things that they've fixed about the 737 max, which is great. I have a couple ongoing concerns. One, the cockpit alert system is not up to par. The alerts that come in if there's a problem with the MCAS system. And there's the solution with the MCAS and their fix. They can't get rid of the MCAS system because the MCAS system is integral to the aerodynamics of the airplane. So now they've added an alert. So now there's two alerts on the airplane, which is better than one. But if there's disagreement, you don't necessarily know which is right. So they really should have put three alerts on, but they wanted to save money, so they only put two. And if there's disagreement, then instead of making a decision on one, which one is correct, they turn off the MCAS system, like in the middle of flying. But the MCAS system, <laughs> Like you need it. Otherwise, why not just take it out of the airplane altogether, right? They don't want to do that because they need it under certain circumstances. But again, it feels compromised. And then honestly, when I'm seeing Boeing out in the world today, I'm not seeing a company who is owning what happened, who is making the necessary changes, who is investing in and changing kind of the culture of concealment. The 737 MAX 10, they're trying to get Congress to agree to let, again, a compromised airplane with a compromised pilot alert system to not have to have the same rules that apply to everybody else because it's going to cost them money because they built it wrong. And they want that airplane up in the sky. Devazi is saying, we're not going to let this happen, but he may get overruled. That plane may greenlit. And the people who are running the company, Calhoun was the head of the board when all of these things happen. Like they're not, there's not a sense of, okay, we made mistakes. We're going to revamp this whole company. We're going to go back to what we used to be and focus on excellence and safety. They continue to have ongoing issues. So I don't feel like this company that I trust, honestly, right now still, until they do that work, I haven't seen any indication that they really have done it in any meaningful way. So under those conditions, I personally would not get on a 737 MAX and I would not want my family to either or friends. And many of the pilots, including those two, Deja and Dan Carey, say absolutely don't get on those airplanes. I think my mind is is made up too now, if it wasn't before. And I would just say in closing that you have not only shown what's wrong with Boeing, the downfall of Boeing is clear, but what's broken with the whole system. And by doing so through this story that also makes it so clear what the actual and the emotional stakes are, I think you've given us 
a certain amount of hope or at least inspiration to go out and fix what's broken. So thank you and congratulations on the film and thanks for being here, Rory. Great to see you, Ken and Michael. Thank you both for having me. It was terrific. And you guys clearly did your homework, which I appreciate. <laughs> it was lovely talking to you. Hope to see you in person one of these days. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary film that you don't think gets the attention that it should get? It's not really something that's necessarily hidden. It's just it hasn't been seen widely, which is the documentary Moon Age Daydream, which is the new David Bowie documentary, Brett Morgan's, which I think is really fantastic. 